Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to grow in our learning and our understanding of the faith that you have once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, we thank you, Father, for teaching tools like the Heidelberg Catechism. We thank you especially for your word, which the Catechism merely summarizes. And we pray, Father, that your word would be at work in our lives. Uh, we thank you for the word that we heard today and the opportunity to fellowship at your table. And we ask for a blessing to be upon the instruction in the classrooms with all the little ones, that it would augment the learning and instruction that parents are giving in the home. And bless our time together as adults, Lord. Uh, may we grow in our understanding uh, of the faith that you have given. And so we ask, Father, for these things through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Okay, we are on questions 2021, 20, right? Which would be Lord's Day 7. That's correct. So last week we made it through Lord's Day 5 and 6. Um, so we're going through the Heidelberg Catechism. If you don't have your own copy, you can find it in the blue Psalter hymnal. If you're in my class, I would like you to have uh, something open, either the um, hymnal or your own copy, just so you can refer to it. And uh, so Lord's Day 7 is questions 20, 21, 22, 23. Uh, very briefly again, remember Heidelberg Catechism published when? Very good, 1563. Um, you know, it's good for us, I, I think, to begin to be familiar with the 16th century and, and even with the decades, uh, because there's a lot going on from decade to decade. Uh, 1563, right around that time, is an interesting time because the first, uh, the, the first huge batch of reformers are beginning to die off. I mean, Luther, you know, he dies off in uh, 46. Uh, Calvin dies off in uh, 64. Uh, Vermeule, 62. Um, and so it's right around that time that you have uh, confessions codifying uh, the faith uh, as... Uh, articulated in the Reformed churches in the 16th century. So Belgic Confession is 1561 and Heidelberg 1563. And as we know, it was written by uh, Ursinus, uh, Zacharias Ursinus, a uh, teacher at the University of Heidelberg, a uh, great Reformed theologian, and he was commissioned by uh, Frederick the Elector, Frederick Elector uh, in Heidelberg, and uh, basically uh, a ruler over that part of what is now Germany. Back then it was called the Palatinate. And uh, he wrote several catechisms. R encourage you to read his larger catechism. Maybe we'll go through that someday. It's my favorite catechism. Uh, deals with covenant theology. But the Heidelberg is uh, very loved all around the world uh, because of its pastoral warmth and because of the way that it uh, explains the Christian faith uh, in the order of guilt, grace, gratitude. That's so important for us to get. If we understand that, we understand a lot about the, the Christian faith. Guilt, grace, gratitude. So the catechism goes through that in uh, these 52, it's divided up, it's 127 questions are divided up into 52 Sundays or Lord's Days. And so we're looking at Lord's Day 7 now, and we are in the grace section, so we already went through the guilt section, and uh, we come now to question 20 are all saved through Christ, just as all were lost through Adam? 
those who are saved by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Okay, so this is important for us to understand because you have some passages uh, that talk about uh, the, you know, the two Adams, as, we, as we've talked about before, that uh, federal theology, federal headship, and uh, let's see if these work here. So you have the first Adam in the garden. He does not obtain glory represented in the tree of life. He does not reach that goal. Instead, he falls. And so in that first Adam, that first category, what do we have? We have condemnation. Uh, you know, which is guilt. You could say guilt, uh, corruption or pollution, and death. And then you have the second Adam, who is Christ, who he is sent in order to bring us to that goal that the first Adam failed to reach. The first Adam, according to Paul, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, represented the whole human race. Uh, the second Adam, or the last Adam, Christ, does not represent the whole human race, but the elect, all of those whom the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. Uh, someone was asking me last week, how come, if somebody asked the question, it's a legitimate question, why, did, why didn't God just have Christ represent the whole human race the same way that he had Adam represent the whole human race? He could have if he wanted to, but he chose not to. And so everywhere in Scripture, we have to go with what Scripture says, not with what we would have done if we were God. Um, but if God wanted to, he could have left everybody in their sin, everybody in their condemnation and guilt and death, to face eternal death and damnation, which was what we deserve because of our sin. But in his grace and mercy, knowing that this would happen before the foundations of the world, the Father gives to the Son a, a massive number of people for him to represent. As he comes into the world in the fullness of time, born like the first Adam, body and soul, true humanity, and like the first Adam, not conceived in sin. Uh, the only human being after the fall not to be conceived in sin because he wouldn't have been able to be our sacrifice had he been a sinner. And he's perfectly obedient to the law, whereas Adam was not. And he obtains for us eternal life and glory, the glorified life that was held out as the goal for Adam to obtain through his obedience. And Christ has done that for all those whom he represents. And he has earned for them justification and life, eternal life. So the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, we could add, yeah, justification, of course, is forgiveness and righteousness, and eternal life. And this is what Paul does when he sets up the two Adams, in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Another place where he uh, mentions the two Adams is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
where he says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, some have read that and thought, oh, well, maybe everybody's going to go to heaven because of Christ. Well, that, I mean, that might be an interesting thought. The problem with that is that it doesn't, it doesn't square with the rest of Scripture. Scripture talks about some being left in their sin to face the judgment that they deserve. In other words, there is a hell. And it's not that God created people for that, but it's that that's the, God will be glorified uh, by his justice poured out on sinners that deserve his justice. And his justice, he's also glorified by his justice being poured out on Christ, who suffered in the place of all those for whom he came to represent. And uh, he lays down his life for the sheep, in other words. So Jesus didn't die for a nameless, faceless, hypothetical group. You know, if you take the offer, maybe if somebody takes the offer, then they'll be able to earn, they'll be able to get eternal life. No, he came with your name in mind. All those who put their faith in Jesus were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Romans 9, 2 Timothy 1, John 17, that's everywhere. But all, all in Adam is every human being. All in Christ are those who are joined to him by faith. Now, we're going to talk about faith in just a minute. But are there any questions on that? Right. Right. So that's a good question. So the question is, what's the difference between life before the fall and glorified life? Well, life before the fall, okay, if we put a little a line here, uh, and we should say before Adam is confirmed in righteousness and holiness. He's created in righteousness, righteousness and holiness, but God gives him things to do. Uh, he doesn't only say, don't eat of that one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but he also requires of him certain things. Have dominion over the earth, populate the earth, name the animals, protect what is holy, protect the garden. And, uh, and we see all that. You know, we say, well, where are the verses that show that? Well, some of that is in Genesis. Some of that is borne out in the rest of the Old Testament, what was required of Adam. Uh, so that life that he enjoys is good. It's free from sin, but it carries with it the possibility of death if he disobeys. So, and, and so in the 5th century, Augustine had this uh, debate with Pelagius and, uh, and explained that before the fall, Adam uh, had the, the ability to uh, not sin and the ability to sin. He wasn't born a sinner, but he had true free will. True free will that was not tainted by sin in any way. Our will, we have free will, but our problem is our free will is tainted with sin so that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, our will is actually in bondage. So yeah, you have a free will, but the problem is you choose according to a corrupt heart. And with that, we'll never choose Christ. We need the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in his effectual grace to bring us to Christ. Well, uh, 
Adam has this great life in the garden where all things are good. God pronounced everything good, but there still is the possibility of him falling, at least before he is confirmed. I mean, we have to assume from everything that Scripture says that there would have come some point where he is confirmed, where he passes the probationary period, where he's able to say it is finished, and he did everything that God required of him, and he enters into glorified life. Glorified life, as Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere, is, the, uh, is uh, created life that is good, but glorified. It's magnified on a whole greater scale. And that's precisely what Satan does not want. He doesn't want man to reach this. Because man is already created in the image of God to reflect God's glory. And Satan hates God getting glory. He wants the glory. And so he hates man, the reflector of God's glory. And he knows that if Adam fulfills the covenant that he is in, the covenant of works, and obeys God, then he is going to enter into this, and he can't have that. So he tries to derail the program. But in this age, there will be, as Revelation tells us, there will be nothing that enters in to the, uh, the new heavens or new earth or the heart of man that causes a lie or deception or evil. Uh, We will be free from sin and even the possibility of sin. And that's what Jesus Christ has earned for us as the last Adam. Yeah. Before Adam was confirmed. Before Adam passed his probationary period. Yeah. No. According to Scripture, sin is impossible in the resurrection. According to Scripture. No. That's, that's wrong, because it's not, heaven is not just we're going back to the garden. That wouldn't be heaven. You'd be back on a probationary period. Think of a probationary status as, uh, you know, probationary period. My son just got a job at Vons, so he's the best bagger, cart getter, broom pusher I've seen at Vons. And isn't he handsome? He's so good. He doesn't, he doesn't know how to rent out the machine yet, but, um, yeah, <laughs> now I'm embarrassing him. But... Uh, He's, but he's on, as we all know, when you get a new job, uh, especially when you're young, um, you're on a probationary period. You have a probationary status. And uh, don't think probation as in, okay, you were arrested, you, you know, now you're on probation. Think of probation as in, okay, you've been given something, but you have to earn something. And uh, the probationary period for a job, you would enter into full co- uh, confirmed status. Um, that's clearly what Adam is in, in that he th- carries the possibility of this. As, as Augustine said to Pelagius, he was born posse pecare, posse non pecare, the ability to sin, the ability not to sin. But then ever since the fall, man doesn't have that ability. Man has only the ability uh, to go on sinning. We don't, we don't have the ability not to sin. We are non posse non pecare. And, uh, but in glory, and so Christ comes, and in his humanity, he has true, pristine free will the same way Adam does, and he is tempted by Satan, the way Adam was, but he sustains the temptation. And he's confirmed in righteousness. And he's obedient, as Paul says in Philippians 2, all the way to the cross. The cross pays the debt that we owed, but it's his obedience throughout his whole life that earns for us the righteousness that we need to be accepted by God. And because he's crossed the finish line, all those whom he represented have crossed the finish line with him. So that when we are raised, we will be... uh, 
not able to sin, non posse pecari. There's a big difference, and it'll be glorified life. And that's why, we, that's why I love talking about heaven. We, you know, the, one of the worst things that, Christ, that Christianity has ever uh, done is have a bad view of heaven. Heaven is not a cloud. It's not up there somewhere. Um, yeah, the Bible talks about you know, Christ returning and bringing his people, but heaven is brought down to earth. It's a new earth. So if you love mountains and rocks and trees, you're going to see them again. God doesn't wipe away his creation. See, that's a Gnostic, Platonic, anti-Christian idea that uh, you know, there's not going to be this earth in heaven. Christ has a body right now. And we're going to have bodies, and we're going to eat and work and play, but it'll be all without sin, and it'll be all to the glory of God, and you'll always want more, and God will give you more, and you'll always enjoy it. There'll always be more to learn and more to enjoy and more to see. It'll be creation as it was meant to be enjoyed. And when we, do give any, when we have any view less than that, then we don't understand Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 21 and 22, and then we actually make heaven kind of this boring place that, well, I want to have my fun here on earth before I go to heaven. And that's a horrible idea. That's just a horrible idea. Heaven is not going to be a, a white cloud with gold slippers and Morgan Freeman talking. Uh, that, that's not heaven. I don't want to go to that place. Uh, you know, so yes, the soul departs to go with the Lord upon death immediately, but it awaits the last day when Christ returns and soul and body reunite, and then we live in glory on a glorified earth. Um, and that's our, that's our hope. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. And you have that hope. You have that hope. You have that hope on November 8 and November 9. It's not the end of the world, no matter what happens. Okay? That's your hope. Your hope is not, oh, I hope this happens or this happens or that. That's just all, you know, secondary, tiny, almost nothing. This hope is the same no matter what kind of country or government you live under. It's the same for Christians in the pre-Constantine Roman Empire who are being fed to the lions. And it's the same in America and in communist Soviet Union, it's the same. That's your hope, is the, the glory of the age to come. And, you know, we're, we're looking forward to that. It's our blessed hope, Titus 2.13. What is our blessed hope? The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, when we, are, when we, when we have this. Okay, but question 20 is talking about Adam and Christ, the two categories. And we are joined to Christ by faith. So let's talk about faith real quick. Because faith is something that we need to talk about. Faith is a word that gets misused a lot in our culture. You just got to have faith, right? Remember the George Michael song? Got to have faith. Faith in what? Faith in what, George Michael? Just got, just got to have faith. Faith in what? In what? And so faith gets misused all the time. You know, we say things like, well, you know, I'm, I, okay, so I'm a baseball coach, as you know, for Little League. I hear faith getting thrown around all the time in sports. You just got to believe. You got to believe, I hear all the time. 
You know, and, and then a lot of times, I wouldn't let my team ever do this, but the other teams we would play, and we did go undefeated 22-0 and this season, the other teams would often do the, I, I believe, I believe that we will win, I believe that we will win. It's a chant that's real popular now in sports. I'm like, all right. Um, I believe that you need to have a good pitching and solid defense and good base running, but uh, let's see how that's going to work. And uh, faith is a word that gets tossed around all the time as if it's this magical stuff that you got to tap into that's going to make your dreams come true. That if you just wish upon a star hard enough, <laughs> you know, have faith. You just got to, I'm really trying. And then it, you're going to get the job you want and you're going to have happiness and, you know, uh, I'm a Padres fan, and so we, you know, we live in perpetual disappointment, right? Every year, like I said, you know when the playoffs are because the Padres aren't in it. And, uh, and but we're always saying you just got to have faith. So the faith, you know, I'm, I have faith I'm going to get this promotion. I have faith that you know whatever's going. It's it's used to mean a mystical, uh, uh, hopeful thinking, wishful thinking. That if you work up enough, it has some kind of magnetic electric energy that can change the course of events. That's not faith according to the Bible. So what is faith? What is true faith? Question 21. What is true faith? Now, this is one of, there's, you know, like I said, there's, there's maybe 10 catechism questions that are really worth mem- memorizing. I mean, the whole, you could memorize the whole thing, but some are more worthy of our memorization than others. Question 21 is definitely one of the keepers. In fact, if I were only going to memorize three questions of the Heidelberg Catechism, just three, so that if I was ever Tom Hanks and a castaway on an island, and I had no books, which that is hell to me, okay, that is hell, uh, then I would have at least these three questions memorized. It'd be question one, question 21, and question 60. And uh, faith is a good one to have. Uh, And if you're getting wheeled into the the machine for an MRI or a CAT scan. So what is faith? Okay, well, when we talk about faith, we have to understand it has three parts. And... uh, this, is some, this was debated at the time of the Reformation. Now, classically, what we have understood faith to mean, and even in the medieval era, it has three parts. The first part, the, the Latin word was noticia, which simply means knowledge. So uh, the early and medieval theologians would say, yeah, first you need noticia, knowledge. You've got to have knowledge of the facts. What facts? God is holy. Man is sinful. God sent Christ 
so that I can have my sins forgiven and have eternal life. Basic facts. Um, you, we need to have knowledge of that, of those facts. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. The second part, however, is an agreement or an assent. And so the Latin was assensus. Simply means assent or agreement that you believe it's true. Now, this much does not constitute faith. Not true faith. For even the demons have this much. So, somebody who says, yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ lived and died, and even that that's the one way of salvation, doesn't necessarily have true faith. Um, That's just an acknowledgement that 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 fact is true. The third part is the part that was debated at the time of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church taught that the third part was love. You need to have love, because Paul does say faith working through love. So the Roman Catholic Church took that to mean that you need to have love, which is essentially your works. And that that constitutes what they called formed faith. Before you have works, love, for God and neighbor, your faith is unformed. And then you need formed faith. And it's only then that you really cooperate with the grace of God and begin to earn the merit that you need to be justified. As you can see, I mean, as you can imagine, the Reformers took issue with that based on on, uh, Paul's letters to the Romans, the Galatians, letter to the Hebrews, the whole Bible. And they even turned to the early fathers to show that uh, there's plenty of places where the early fathers draw upon the scriptures to show that faith is not... Uh, combined with my works so that, to receive justification, but rather the third part of faith is what they called fiducia. Oops. Trust. So I hear God holy, me sinful, Christ die for my sins, me trust in him, me go heaven. Basic knowledge. Yeah, I believe that's true. I believe it's true for me. But you see what it is here. Faith has an object. Trust is saying, I'm a sinner. I'm banking on Christ. And this is the difference. You know, I don't know why I made that all loopy. I don't like that. This is you. This is Christ as he is presented in his word. And faith looks to Christ and says, God help me, I'm a sinner. I have only Jesus. I have nothing else. I got all the chips on him. I'm banking on him to get me to heaven, not my good works. That's true faith. Works, good works are a fruit of faith. They are produced in the life of someone who has true faith. But the problem is is that if we begin to look at our works as some ground of justification before God, when do you know when you've done enough? 
And you'll, you'll either be led to despair, saying, I don't have enough good works. I lost my temper again. Or, you know, I, I wanted to kill that person on the freeway. I heard the sermon on Jonah. And I'm, man, I'm like, Jonah, I'm a lot worse. Um, I had probably seven people go out the door saying, oh, I'm Jonah. I'm Jonah. And we're all Jonah. And so if we look at ourselves, we don't see the good works. Or we play the Pharisee. Oh, I've got lots of good works. And, uh, and the problem is then we're trusting in ourselves. And that what that person is doing is their faith is in themselves. Or even in their faith. You can have your faith in your faith. That's how I would... I was raised to believe, not, not by fault of my parents, but I was raised to believe, based on the theology that we received when I was younger, you know, what is your assurance? My assurance is that I said the sinner's prayer. And so my faith was in the fact that I said the sinner's prayer when I was four years old. That is not faith in Christ. That is faith in, in an act that I did. That's what I was resting on. I was hoping that God would see that and spare me. But the sinner who is saved says, my faith is extrospective. Not introspective. Good works are produced as a fruit of that, but the faith itself rests in Jesus. This is no good. This will only lead to self-righteousness or despair. This is what will lead to a life of good works done from gratitude. Because your hope, your identity, your self-worth is found not in yourself, but in Jesus. That was the message of the reformers as they drew upon Paul's letters talking about faith, these three things. And so question 21, what is true faith? It is not only a sure or certain knowledge that everything that God has revealed in His Word is true, notitia, ascensus, uh, but it is also a hearty trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the Gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. That not only to others, yeah, that guy in church, who, man, he's a good Christian and she in church, oh, she's a saint. But to me also, the forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given to me by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Though I am the least deserving. So question 21 is hitting on these three parts. Any questions on that? That's really important to get. Yeah, why go to a church like that? If I can't know, I'm not going to waste my Sunday morning. That's for darn sure. Well, no. No, you can know. You can know. I mean, look at look what Paul says everywhere. I mean, our, our assurance, here's where our assurance is. Our assurance is as sure as Christ has been raised from the dead. And this is why we have the sacrament. Because we're so disbelieving, it seems too good to be true, that God says, okay, here, I'm going to give you something you can eat and put it in your mouth. As surely as the bread and wine go in your mouth, so too has Christ given his body and blood for you. 
But I mean, everywhere in Scripture, we find, you know, Paul saying that uh, we can know. Uh, I mean, we just read Romans 8, for example, where he's saying, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's asking these rhetorical questions. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, there it is, that neither Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So God's love comes to you through Christ Jesus. That's why you just say, you're all I got. You're all I got. When I get on a plane, uh, every time we take off, I just, I, I pray and I, and, you know, I confess my sins, ask God to watch over my family if, if he wants to take me. And, uh, but I'm always brought right back there to the same thing. Jesus is all I got. That's it. Not my performance, his performance. His obedient life and his death and his empty tomb. That's it. I got nothing else to bring to the table. And I can't hold on to anything else and say this is what uh, merits God's forgiveness. And that's why faith is extrospective. You know. So if someone says to you, if you should die, will God uh, let you into heaven? I would say yes. Why? And I wouldn't say, you know, because I said a prayer or because... I have true faith, or because I did this, I'm going to say because of Jesus, because he died and lived, died, and rose again from the dead. And that's how true faith speaks. True faith just looks to him. True faith is like the, the, uh, uh, the tax collector who beat his breast and, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, and the Pharisee was trusting in himself and said, God, thank you for not making me like that sinner. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Where's your hope? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I don't, he's not getting that from Scripture. That's for sure. I mean, there are places, there are warnings, to be sure. There's many warnings, yeah. I mean, I mean in Colossians, for example, in, you know, in, in Colossians chapter 1, it said, you, you once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled you in his body and flesh, uh, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Um, but, the, but what that is, is that's a warning sign. Think of it like, like this. God uses warnings as some of the means to secure our perseverance. So if, if God says, you're going to make it on a road trip from San Diego to L.A., uh, or San Diego to New York, you're going to make it. He is foreordained you're going to make it. Um, but he uses means to that end. 
And so you don't just drive your car and say, watch, I can crash into buildings, I can drive off the cliff because God's promised. Um, no, it's when it says, you know, danger, windy road, and um, especially if Gloria's with you, you're going to drive more carefully, right? And so, uh, you know, but those signs, those road signs are warnings, but they're some of the means that God would use to secure your perseverance. It's the same thing in Scripture. You know, if you continue, the person with true faith says, yes, I want to continue. But Jesus, you're all I got. You're it. You're all I got. And that is persevering faith. You will, yeah, but that perseverance doesn't always look the same. The one thing that, it, the one common thread is going to be uh, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So, you know, David, David was foreordained, chosen by God. But boy, his perseverance didn't look too good. Murder, adultery, uh, abuse of power, you know, but God brought him to repentance. That's the difference. God brought him to repentance. And so, and there were, you know, horrible consequences for all that stuff, but God brought him to repentance in the end. Because in the end, what is he doing? He's, he's looking to God's promise of a Savior, you know, on the other side of the cross. But this is what I want to make sure it's clear in your mind. When we talk about faith, this is what we're talking about. Knowledge of the facts, agreement that they're true, and trust saying, Jesus, you're all I got. Um, that is what we mean when we say faith. Works are a fruit of faith. They're a byproduct of faith. And, and the person with faith will desire to do that and will always have a sense of, I'm, gosh, I'm not doing enough good works. So that is correct. Yeah, by coming to church, you can kind of think of church, what we call the means of grace. You know, the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, you know, I've heard it said that it's like a faith factory. Your faith is being strengthened. All, all, all three aspects. Yeah, you're growing in your knowledge of the Word of God. Because, yeah, you can have the basic knowledge, right? God, holy, me, sinner. But you can't stay there. I've heard some Christians say, well, all I know is once I was blind and now I can see. Well, that's fine for the blind man. He'd been, he'd been saved, by, you know, he'd been uh, rescued by Christ for like, what, three hours? But if you're still saying that after 30 years, something's wrong. We've got to grow in our understanding, right? So we get knowledge. We continue to see, wow, these are true. I mean, the Holy Spirit confirms in our hearts, too, the truth of the Word of God. And we continue to trust in Christ. This is, what's, this is what coming to church ultimately does, is it causes us to trust in Christ. We see ourselves in someone like Jonah. The pathway to holiness, you know, it's, it's paved with a sense of your own sin and your wretchedness. You see, it, one person told me, or put it well this way, he said that your, it, your, your sanctification ultimately is just believing the gospel more. <laughs> because more and more as you are sanctified, you see how big of a sinner you are. It's not that you're becoming a worse sinner. You're actually growing in sanctity. But you are uh, more aware of your own sin. That's what, what we're seeing ourselves in someone like Jonah. It does for us. And how gracious is God, by the way, to give us a book like Jonah? He doesn't say, you know, he's a prophet, 
a prophet for crying out loud, a prophet of God, and he's acting that way. And God says, here, I'll put this in the Bible, because I know that you guys are down on yourselves for being sinners. And I want you to see, too, what kind of a sinner you are. Look, even my prophets acted this way. God's gracious to us, but ultimately he wants us to believe. What did the Israelites do? They didn't believe. God's like, okay, I'll, I'll rain down ten plagues on the most powerful nation in the world at that time. Still don't believe. I'll open up the Red Sea, and you'll walk across it. Didn't believe. Manna from heaven. Don't even know what it is. You have to say, what is it? Which is what manna means. Quail. Water from the rock. Don't believe, don't believe. Jericho falling down. Still don't believe. Still don't believe. And so this is the problem. You know, and so he sends his own son. You know, this is what I always laugh when people say, well, if God did this or did that, you know, then maybe I would believe, or, you know, maybe so-and-so would believe. If he would just send the right person to my brother, then maybe he'd believe. It's like, he rose his son from the dead, for crying out loud. He's given you everything you need to believe. But we need that Holy Spirit to work in the heart to, so that we put our trust in him. Very important that we get this. Okay, uh, questions 22 and 23 uh, briefly, just so that we can finish. What then must a Christian believe? And so you can see the progression here. And now it goes, what are these articles? And uh, we don't have to confess it together right now, but these are the, this is the Apostles' Creed, which we say almost every Sunday. And then what it's going to do, starting with Lord's Day 8, and Dr. Glomsrud will, will be teaching the class next week, is it begins to exposit the Apostles' Creed. I mentioned yesterday at the conference, this is one of the great assets of the Heidelberg Catechism. It was so wisely crafted by the 16th century reformers, and it's, it's sadly one of, I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but that's, one, that's the, in my opinion, one of its uh, great weaknesses is that it doesn't have an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. I mean, it's written like almost 100 years later and uh, in a different situation. Um, but the, what, why that's so good that it goes through the Apostles' Creed is that the reformers in the 16th century were sensitive to the fact that they didn't want uh, reformed churches to appear as if we are a new thing but rather that uh, it is simply Jesus Christ's church uh, reformed. They, remember, they tried to reform from within, uh, but your, cho- your choices were essentially be killed or go uh, underground or flee. And, uh, and so as church, reformed churches began, began to be planted and established, it was important for them to hold on to the creeds because those had been confessed since the early church. And so uh, here's where we have to be humble and not have what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, thinking, well, why do we need the Apostles' Creed? You know? Well, because Christ's church has confessed it since the very beginning, since, since uh, the early fathers, and the Nicene Creed since the 4th century. And uh, the Reformers weren't about to say unilaterally, oh, I've got to do away with that stuff. Uh, so instead, here's the creed. What do we mean when we say each one of these lines? And, you know, and if we have a fear of creeds, um, which part of my job will be to help you overcome that fear, uh, it, that maybe it's just a, a dead, a rote 
uh, lifeless you know, tradition to just mouth the words. I get that. I understand what you're saying. But the Heidelberg Catechism gives us the tools to know what we believe and why we believe it when we say each one of those lines. And so it's going to go through in our uh, beginning next week, uh, the Apostles' Creed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that you've given us. We pray that you would bless our instruction to our hearts, our minds, help us to grow in our understanding. Thank you for this little school of catechism classes. And we ask, Father, that we would continue to grow in knowledge and in faith all to your glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.